0: Our scripture reading for today is Acts 9, 1 through 20. Listen now to the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Um, We're going to be continuing our season of Easter time, where we investigate together the post-resurrection stories of Jesus. One thing that I've been really appreciating about this series is Pastor Dave's take on just how Jesus met everyone very individually, met them on a very personal level, and that when Jesus loves them, he loved them perfectly. And so we saw that they all struggled in different ways, but Jesus knew exactly how to meet them. So Mary Magdalene, she experienced tremendous loss the Mary is comforted by Jesus appearing and then gives her a special mission to the mourning apostles. On the Emmaus Road, the two trials were dealing with losing hope and our tendency to go back to our bad habits. Jesus is giving us an opportunity to grieve, but then to reorient ourselves with the Lord that gives us a greater future and hope. Thomas struggled with unbelief, but when he was surrounded, by a community who is willing to accept his unbelief, he was willing to be corrected from his unbelief. And then he proclaimed one of the greatest statements, my Lord and my God. For Peter, Jesus is offering a meal to counter the emotional eating, the grief bacon, as Pastor Dave said, to satisfy the longing within us, to fellowship together, to declare that he loves us and he forgives us. Last week, We identified with Peter as he struggled with comparing himself and wanting to be the best disciple. But instead of focusing on ourselves and others, we need to build on Jesus' love for us. Today, we're going to be focusing on Jesus' amazing encounter with Saul on the road to Damascus. So let us pray as we consider how Jesus loved Saul perfectly. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for inviting each and one of us to be here together to worship and enjoy you grant us humble hearts to receive and a tenderness to hear your words of life and healing speak lord holy spirit convict us of our sins and point us to jesus to our great savior deliverer and healer help us to see that our only hope is found in christ in jesus name amen all right um, I'm sure many of us have helped people who have gone through difficult times. And of course, there's some extreme cases um, where one side does horrible things to another, and that is a very serious topic. Um, But I wanna talk about a more, maybe a situation that happens more regularly, whether in a romantic or plutonic, where both sides have made mistakes, and now there's conflicts because of their mistakes, where there's blame on both sides. I think most relationships kind of fall under this category. This past year, um, I've been challenged and blessed to be part of a lot of reconciliations uh, between people in our college and young adult community. And I have learned a lot that I need to grow in this area and also how to be a better friend to people who are struggling. So I wanted to paint us a picture of a potential scenario, a friend, a family member, someone that you loved comes and pours out the hurt, the pain, the anger, the resentment that they have toward another person. The first thing I learned of this, first of all, is that it's important to appreciate and affirm the person. I acknowledge that my initial tendency is to counsel, give suggestions, want to try this, try that. And I've learned painfully that that's the wrong response. And then what it ends up doing is it creates more pain because you're like, you don't hear me. You don't understand me. And so I failed a lot. So I apologize to my college and young adult group here. Um, so I learned that it's important to appreciate and affirm people. It's critical. It's essential. But after we, someone has heard and validated, then we consider this next step. And that's the part that I want us to talk about today. So as I said, the premise is that both sides have made mistakes. So then we are led to ask this uncomfortable question, Have you done anything wrong in this relationship that would have contributed to this situation? Is there a sin that you might need to repent of yourself? And I think many of us, when we're in that difficult place, we're tempted to say, I've never sinned in this situation. I've never acted selfishly. I've never withheld forgiveness. I've never acted inappropriately. Nothing. So you're completely justified to be angry and to blow up at other people. What I'm concerned about is when this temptation becomes a continuous pattern. I think the temptation is normal and I think all of us feel that at times. But I want to address is when we give in to those temptations. And I think when we do, we fall into something that I'm gonna call today spiritual narcissism. And spiritual narcissism, as I'm gonna define it, is the condition of not being able to or willing to see your own sin while feeling completely justified to point out everyone else's sin. So when you look at yourself, you're like, there's nothing wrong with me, I'm good. Oh man, but that person, wow, they got a whole load of things that they're wrong. And I feel like there's nothing more dangerous and destructive than a spiritual narcissist who claims to believe the Bible, goes to church and has a religious zeal. And I believe Saul actually fits under this category prior to his conversion. He was a spiritual narcissist, and such people will become destroyers. They use their knowledge to justify themselves and then beat other people over their heads with their knowledge and cause tremendous damage. This is not solving the problem. It only makes things worse. But what I want to encourage us is that our story today reveals the only hope for a spiritual narcissist is a loving confrontation with Jesus that provides accurate spiritual awareness. So let's look at Saul's background a little bit to understand the amazingness of this story is to understand kind of the terrible past that he had. First, Saul's from Tarsus. He says in Acts 21.39, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. Saul wasn't bragging. He was saying that Saul was one of the most highly regarded cities throughout the Roman Empire. Tarsus was also known as one of the leading universities with Athens and Alexandria. It was ranked basically like the Harvard, Yale and Princeton of our time. Second, Saul enjoyed the status of Roman citizenship, which he inherited from his father. It would have been very strange for a common Jew to have this privilege, so it's considered a high honor. Third, he he has also been taught a trade. Tarsus was famous for manufacturing of goat hair's felt which is likely why Saul learned to be a tent maker as a trade. Basically, what we're seeing is that Saul is a skilled, educated man from a respected family who was born and raised in the most highly intellectual, respected city in the empire. He's not dumb. He's not an idiot. On top of that, Saul was 100% Jewish and very proud of it. Saul says of himself in Philippians 3.5, He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee. That's basically having like a perfect score when it comes to being a Jew. And on top of that, he basically could speak three languages, Aramaic, Hebrew and Greek. He was educated by one of the greatest Pharisees, Gamaliel, um, who is considered possibly one of the greatest Jewish thinkers of all times. So when I think about his background, I guess I am reminded of, I guess, the Star Wars Wars movies. And I'm thinking of young Anakin Skywalker. And when you think about young Anakin Skywalker, he was basically a prodigy from the beginning. Right. The force was strong within him. Right. And we saw uh, at a young boy, you admire his power. He had great intentions and he had this great relationship with his mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi. But something goes terribly wrong with Anakin. His hunger for power to save his wife leads him over to the dark side. When he believes the lies of the evil emperor. Before long, Anakin Skywalker transformed into Darth Vader. Hopefully I didn't spoil that for anyone. Uh, and that doesn't end very well. Um, to some extent, I kind of see this is what happened to Saul. He was a great talent, great religious convictions, great intentions. But somewhere along the way, Saul became convinced that Christians are the enemies of God. And with a completely clean conscience, Saul takes on the role of a righteous prosecutor. He's then commissioned by the chief priest with letters to pursue, arrest, and persecute any and all followers of the way. Luke writes that Saul was ravaging the city, entering house to house, dragging off men and women, and committing them to prison. In Acts 9:1, which is our passage today, Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of God, and how they, his obsession with ravaging the church leads him to pursue those who have escaped Jerusalem into cities and villages. Saul later says that he persecuted the way to the death. Not only did he throw people into prison, but in Acts 26 he cast his vote to have them executed on more than one occasion. So as we're going to look at the story, um, it's an interesting story because in the book of Acts, it's stated three times. Luke shares it from his perspective, and then Paul testifies about it twice. And so it's a very, very important story. So getting into our text in Acts 9, 3 through 4, it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. So as we read this, I'm really struck by the way Jesus loves Saul. So let's see how he does that. So first of all, Jesus gets his attention. Says a light flashed from heaven around him. This light, it says it's from heaven, originated from heaven. It does not say heavens in the plural with an S, which might say that's the sun and the moons, but it's singular to say it's where God resides. And this was very clear to Saul. So this is not like just the sun or some natural source of light. In Acts 26, 13, he says the light was brighter than the sun. He's basically saying this is a supernatural event. God is encountering him. The man traveling with Saul also see this powerful light and it knocks them all onto the ground. So we know that this is not just a private vision or some heat-induced stroke. Note that the witnesses did not see Jesus because they were blinded by the light. And though they have heard a voice, they could not make out what was said. In Acts 26:14, Paul reveals that the voice spoke in the Hebrew language. I guess it seems to suppose that maybe the others did not understand Hebrew. They might have spoken Aramaic or maybe Greek. And then we see Jesus, and Jesus says this: "Saul, Saul." It may not mean much just to say it twice, but if you think about scriptures, God mentions people's names twice to show intensity, tenderness, and a moment of great importance. For example, Abraham was about to sacrifice his own son in Genesis 22, and God stops him by saying, Abraham, Abraham. Or another time when Jacob, when he was getting old, and he assures him that it is his will for Jacob to move to Egypt. And he says in a dream, Jacob, Jacob. Another example is Moses during the burning bush with the antenna commissioning him to send him to meet Pharaoh. He begins by saying, Moses, Moses. And similarly with Samuel, when he gets the call, he says, Samuel, Samuel. In the New Testament, we see this also twice with Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. Or in Luke ten forty one, about Martha. It says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset by many things. So I believe the repetition of personal name when God speaks is many times to indicate a call, an assignment, or maybe a rebuke. But I would say in this instance, maybe it's all of these things. So now that he has his tension, he says, Saul, Saul, this is the question that I wrestle with the most is why are you persecuting me? Instead of scolding him or yelling at him or whatever, you could have struck him dead. I guess he could have done many things. Jesus asked a question. And as you know, when Jesus asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer, but it's for our sake, for the person receiving, that they would discover the answer. And I think we need to consider this question for ourselves. But as we continue, Saul is actually very confused. And he responds, who are you, Lord? And again, that's a really strange and interesting question. He knows that the life that just stopped him was this divine, supernatural thing. And he knows that this is from heaven, and so that's why he says, who are you, Lord, right? So he acknowledges that something's supernatural, but he's confused. It has never occurred to him that he's persecuting God. In his mind, he's been attacking and persecuting the enemies of God. So why would God now say to him, why are you persecuting me, Right. And I think likewise, when you are a spiritual narcissist, we believe in the depths of our heart, we are right, and everyone else is wrong. And when God tries to rebuke us, you're like, wait, you're not talking to me, right, God? You mean you're talking to that person? Wait, what? Why are you talking to me? I'm not persecuting you. That's not me. That's some other guy. And so likewise, we might ask the same question. Wait, who's talking to me? Who are you? The voice responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. One of the major points is that Jesus identifies himself with the church. The church is the one who's being persecuted, but Jesus is the one who says you're persecuting me. It reminds us of Matthew 25:40 where it says, as you did unto the least of these my brothers, you did also unto me. In the flip, he says in Matthew 25:45 And as you did not do unto the least of my brothers, you did not do unto me. Jesus says that when we love others or don't love others, we ultimately are showing love to Jesus or not showing love to Jesus. And I hope you guys can understand the radical ramifications of this, that basically Jesus loves us. He loves you and me. And basically what he's saying is that Jesus identifies himself with the suffering of his people right when the people of god is suffering he suffers with them it's not just that we are like he's part of us but he is one with us he says it's happening to me and so jesus takes this it almost sounds very personal because jesus is deeply connected to his church his body the second thing that really struck me as a, about this is that jesus helped us to understand that our primary sin is always against god Yes, sinned against the church and the people of God, like Stephen, who is martyred. But Jesus asked, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Strangely, Jesus does not focus on Saul's sins against people, right? And it's not to diminish the struggle of the people, but I think it's to highlight something greater that the bigger issue is your relationship to God, right? I believe David understood this when he sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba. And he wrote in Psalms 51, three and four, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Right, he committed adultery, he sinned with Bathsheba. He sinned against Bathsheba, Bathsheba's husband. But in verse four, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I believe this is the first key to breaking our spiritual narcissism. We need to see that our sin or our issue is not primarily a horizontal people to people, me and you, but our primary problem is between it's a vertical thing, us to God, God to us. So when we sin against our neighbor, a friend or a loved one, this horizontal level, we're ultimately sinning against God. And so I think Jesus can rightfully confront us by asking, why are you persecuting me? Why are you sinning against me? And unless, I believe unless we see Jesus in the middle of all of our horizontal relationships, we will never own up to our sins. It'd be too easy to rationalize and downplay our sins. With others, we can just justify ourselves. But when we talk to God, we cannot. And I believe this is God's grace for us. Jesus confronts Saul so he gains an accurate picture of himself. In Acts 26, 14, it says saw, saw why you me, but there's an extra phrase that's there that struck me. It says, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And of course, most of us, including myself, I was like, what does this mean? What does it mean to kick the goats? Again, kick the goats was a common farming expression back in the day. And though it's unfamiliar to us, it was very, something very familiar to them. So basically, it's like a, a short spear, right? And then one is kind of blunt and the other side has a sharp edge. And so whenever an ox would move, you kind of poke it and then it would get moved. But if the oxen doesn't want to move, you just kind of keep it there. And then the ox will keep kicking it. And all it would do is keep piercing itself time after time after time, causing more and more pain. The point of this expression was simple. Stubbornness and rebellion leads to self-inflicted pain. The Lord's use of this expression in mind Saul that the holy spirit actually has been working in his life prompting Saul for a while maybe even a long time in John 16:8 we read one of the primary roles of the holy spirit is to convict us of our sins and when he comes he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment we know that god convicts us when we're doing wrong We know that God is prodding and prompting us to yield, to stop, to turn around and come back to him. But many of us are too stubborn and we keep kicking the goats. In Hebrews 3, 7 and 8, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God is giving us two choices. Hear his voice and go to God or harden our hearts. So when God is prodding us, Don't fight God. Stop hurting yourself. Stop hurting the people around you. And on this particular occasion, the prodding God turns into a direct confrontation that is spiritual and also physical. Saul cannot escape the presence of heaven and the question that he's been avoiding for some time. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Let me ask a few questions to help us find our place in the narrative. What road are you walking on? towards God, or away from God? Are you kicking the goats? Do you feel the gentle and persistent prodding of God, yet you just keep kicking back, digging in, all the while feeling the consequences of your self-inflicted pain? Who else is suffering because of the choices you make that are in rebellion against God? What would you say, what would Jesus say to you should you meet face-to-face on your way home? If Jesus could forgive Saul, who's a murderer, do you think Jesus could forgive you? Of course. Would you be surprised to know that God has a plan and a purpose for your life? I just want to remind us that we are simple and we're terrible, but God is bigger. God's grace is stronger. Nothing that has happened, God cannot redeem. God is stronger and bigger. He can still accomplish his purpose in us. So, I want to encourage us to yield to the loving confrontation of Christ. God loves us too much, and out of love, he confronts us. Hear what Jesus has to say to you, hear his plans for you, talk to him, ask him to reveal himself and to reveal his plans for your life. The second thing that I found very interesting uh, that's actually found in Acts 22 specifically. After he says, who are you? I am Jesus when you're persecuting. He says in Acts 22.10, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do, Lord? And I think the second thing that happens as we are confronted with our sins is that we're confronted with how do you deal with the guilt? How do you deal with that weight of making that mistake? And what we see here is he says, what shall I do, Lord? He knows that it's obedience, right? The right answer is obedience. And the wrong answer, I'm going to say is penance. So this reminds me of 2 Corinthians 7:10, which says, "For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death." Basically, there are two kinds of grief: a godly grief and a worldly grief. For me, when I first studied it, it's surprising because you think the opposite of godly grief is no grief, But the opposite of godly grief is a worldly grief. So grief, again, is feeling terrible about something, feeling sorrow, feeling bad about certain things. But what's the difference? How do you know which one you have? There are a few things that this passage tells us. First, which way are you running? Worldly sorrow runs away from God. God is scary. Run away from God. Run, 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 I'm afraid, right? Godly sorrow says, run to Jesus. He's going to save me. Run to Jesus. So when you feel bad, are you running away from Jesus or are you running towards Jesus? very different. The second thing that we see is who decides the consequences or the punishment, right? Worldly grief says, I'm going to punish myself. I know how to take, yeah, I'll punish myself. Godly grief says, Jesus, you're justified. You do whatever you think is right. I trust you. Worldly grief is penance, I would say. Voluntary self-punishment inflicted as an outward expression of repentance for having done wrong. Godly grief, many times God will help us have have us deal with whatever things we've done wrong. And oftentimes there's a thing of restitution. We restore what we did wrong. So for example, someone breaks into your house and smashes all your furniture for fun, right? Someone who has penance would say, you know, I'm a high school kid. I'm just going to go to my high school and write on all the chalkboards or whiteboards and say, I'm sorry that I broke all your stuff. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He said, I'm good, right? I said, I'm sorry. What, what else do I need to do, right? Restitution would be on the other hand. the judge would say, you need to pay this back. This is the number of damages done. You need to pay it back, right? And so a lot of us like to do like, let me just punish myself. It's probably not as bad, but none of, most of us are afraid to like do it the right thing. So what is the result? It says that worldly grief produces death while godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Let me give you two examples of how this works. Think of Judas. He betrayed Jesus. He felt horrible, terrible about himself. And so what he does is he feels sorrow. So he has his money. And then he's like, he goes back and says, like, I don't want the money. And he throws the money back. But he still feels really bad. He's like, what do I do? You know, I guess there was a lot of questions. Like if, if he could have gone to Jesus, but instead of going to Jesus, he says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to punish myself. And he commits suicide. That's producing death. Peter, on the other hand, denies Christ three times. He feels terrible. But a couple of weeks ago, we heard that he went fishing. And then John, the type of whom he loved, said, it's the Lord. And what did Peter do? He put on his clothes and he jumped in and he started swimming towards Jesus. Right? He's like, I want to go to Jesus. And then he produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. He's restored and becomes a pillar of the church. So likewise, we have to deal with our guilt in a healthy way. And so Saul acknowledges the guilt and runs to Jesus and invites him to lead him, saying, what shall I do, Lord? I believe he experienced godly sorrow. So I want to encourage that when God confronts us with our sin, the point is not for us to sit around and feel terrible all day long and forever about it. He continues in verse six, Jesus instructs him and says, but rise, enter the city, and you be told what you are to do. Jesus does not kick him to the curb and say, forget you, you made too many mistakes, I can't use you. He says, I have a plan, get up, go this way. Jesus forgives and restores, but listen, God does not spare us from the natural consequences of our behavior. Sometimes he will, but generally that doesn't happen that way. Saul is forgiven and sent, but much of the future suffering he will experience will come as a result of his past life and behavior. The amazing thing is that God can use that suffering for the glory of His kingdom. So, an example of this is if you know the story of Chuck Colson. He had a reputation as the hatchet man for President Nixon, and a hatchet man carries out controversial and does a lot of dirty jobs on the behalf of the person he employs for. And so he would orchestrate illegal activities to destroy and discredit any politicians, journalists, activists who perceived threats to the White House. And at the time, he was seen as the most dangerous man in Washington, D.C., leading to his arrest in the Watergate scandal. There, Chuck saw his sin, repented, and was saved through the grace of Jesus Christ. But did he get out of prison? No. God allowed Chuck to feel the consequences of his crime. But during his time in prison, Chuck heard the call to begin the ministry to inmates. And that ministry, which continues to this day, has changed millions of lives, even now after Chuck Colson's earthly life has ended. Today, we learned that our only hope for a spiritual narcissist is a loving confrontation with Jesus. The first step is to see that in our horizontal relationship, we need to see Jesus in the middle of that horizontal relationship. The Holy Spirit may be convicting us, prodding us to stop and consider what are you doing? Maybe God is allowing us to suffer consequences of our bad choices. We need to address the primary issue, your relationship with God. So I ask, how is your relationship with God? And when we see Jesus in our horizontal relationships, we see that When we sin against people, we sin against God ultimately. And Jesus rightfully may ask us, why are you persecuting me? Why are you sinning against me? The second step is to, again, to follow up by asking, what shall I do, Lord? As we said, when we sin, we naturally feel grief. The question is, do we do it in the godly, have godly grief or worldly grief? And so, yes, we are tempted to have worldly grief that runs away from God. And we have our own penance plan but that doesn't end well in many times ends in death, but rather we need to embrace our godly sorrow and help us to run towards God and ask him, what shall I do, Lord? As we humble and submit ourselves to him, that produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So what happened to Saul? Did, did he obey God? So in Acts 9, 6, after he asked, what shall I do, Lord? The Lord instruction, rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. In 9.8, saw rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. God sends Ananias to speak to him. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he gained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, taking food. He was strengthened. Yes, godly sorrow, Saul's godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And as a result, instead of remaining a spiritual narcissist, Saul testifies about Jesus in 920, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And after this point, Paul's life begins to be transformed and no longer centers on himself. And in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, he says, for I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Life is not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. Let's pray. I do pray for some who have been truly victims from horrific evils in this world. And we ask that you would deliver them from those situations. God, we also just want to thank you that you can save the spiritual narcissists. Lord, that you know that I many times can be a spiritual narcissist. I'm so tempted to think about life is about me. It centers around me. To see that my problems as the most important thing, not your glory, not your kingdom, not your purposes, but it's about me. And then I can get self-righteous and want to bring the smack down my own way. But today, thank you for showing that there is hope for all of us. Thank you that you love Saul perfectly. As you save Saul, you save us. God, I pray for some people who are running away from you right now, who are in their own sin, and for whatever reason, they're just stuck there. But God, thank you in your love. You're inviting each and one of us to run back to you. Save us from ourselves. Open our eyes to see you. Without you, we cannot change. Without you, we're stuck in our ways. Without you, we will keep hurting ourselves and others around us. Without you, we are without hope. But the good news is that we are always, that we are always with you. You're always with us. And no one can snatch us out of your hands. Grant us the grace. Grant us the courage. Grant us the faith to simply come to you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you.